laughter as an efficient way of sort of de-stressing in the moment but also it only works if most both members of the couple laugh it doesn't work if you have to share the laughter for it to work that seems to suggest that it's not that the laughter is a bit of magic that makes everything okay it's again the laughter is like an index of that relationship where you can navigate a better situation i don't think that's limited to romantic relationships i think often that's what we mean by friendship if you think of laughter in that kind of play situation or being i was just trying to reframe things as play it lets you if you can find a way of doing that it lets you become less stressed and also just reframe the whole situation as being something that's not unpleasant or upsetting but actually we're okay you have found the thinking mind podcast This week, it's Anya and Alex, and we're very excited to have Professor Sophie Scott join us. Professor Scott is the director of the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at UCL. Her research looks at the neuroscience of voice, speech, and laughter. Professor Scott also does huge amounts of public engagement work, including work on radio programs, TV, and performing stand-up comedy. We hope you enjoy. Professor Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Of course. So one of the things that I was most excited to read about when I started to read about your work is that I believe you actually grew up or, or did your school in Lancashire, yes. um, not far from where I grew up as well. Really? I'm from Blackburn. <laughs> I'm fr- yeah, so I, I grew up in Lancaster, but my sort of lots of friends around Blackburn. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Lovely part of the world. I mean, I, I don't meet a lot of people from, from up north uh, down in London. So I was wondering if you could share with us about your journey. So from, from I guess, from your life and how you've ended up in London uh, researching. That's a very good question. I, I didn't really know what I wanted. I, I liked science when I was at school. I went to West Ham School in Blackburn and then Queen Elizabeth's Grammar School, Queggs in Blackburn, and I did sciences and I liked sciences. And I kind of thought that what you did with sciences was medicine. And then I, you know, when I was doing my, I, you know, my university applications, I put in for medicine and I thought, as I was doing it, I thought, I don't want to do this. And do you know what? That was probably the most sensible thought I had when I was 18, because I would have made a terrible doctor. And I ended up going to start, because I'd done well in biology, reasonably well in biology. So I went to start a degree in biology at, at Goldsmiths. So I moved to London, went to Goldsmiths, started a biology degree. And... Um, <laughs> It sounds crazy now, but I didn't know anything about psychology. I didn't really know it existed as a thing you could study. And we did a course in animal behaviour on this animal, on this biology degree. And it blew me away. I was absolutely sort of entranced. You know, if you could know this about a goose, what could you know about you know, humans? So I tried to change onto the psychology degree at Goldsmiths. They were like, no, you can't do that. So um, I left Goldsmiths after the first year. And I worked for a year uh, selling kilts and I applied to psychology degrees and I got to, I accepted onto the psychology pathway. There was a life sciences degree with a psychology pathway at what was then the Polytechnic of Central London and started that a year later and loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was still very biological, which suited me. And um, I got to study psychology and I loved that. And one of my lecturers said, oh, you know, you should think about doing a PhD. And I was like, can you? Because that a thing you can do. So I went off and did a bit of research into PhDs and very absolute serendipity. One of our part-time lecturers, David Galbraith, um, 
said oh I've got a I've got a friend at University College London who's always looking for research assistance you know that's a good way of getting into a PhD program so I got in touch with this friend and I actually based my third year project on a piece of his work this was Pete Howell at UCL so um, that was just real genuine serendipity and there was a grant application for PhD students on a new cognitive science funding that the government was doing in 1990 and I got awarded one of those so now, I think it'd be very, very difficult for somebody to go quite seamlessly from a first degree straight into a PhD. But I was, I was very lucky to do so, and I loved it. And I, so that kind of kept me in London, studying kept me in London. And then I, um, I went to Cambridge for a few years after my PhD, and then came back to London. And my family moved away from Lancashire not long after I'd gone to university. So I didn't often get an opportunity to go back, although now I do go back as often as I can do. I have a son and I like to take him to like to take him to the Lake District and to Blackpool. That's wonderful. Um I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're focusing your work on at the moment. I've I don't I I still don't absolutely understand how this has happened, but when I was <laughs> When I was doing my my undergraduate project, I was what I was really interested in was music perception, and that's what I wanted to do a PhD on. And I thought I was going to do a PhD on that, but my supervisor's interest had changed by the time I joined him, and he wanted me to work on speech, so I worked on speech. And speech is very interesting, and voices are very interesting, and that's been a very happy career for me. I've had, you know, I've, I've got no complaints about the opportunity to work in sort of speech and sound and and communication. And the thing that I've got more and more interested in as I've sort of spent more time working in this area is that sort of moving from the the nature of speech and communication vocal communication as a sound through into its social meaning because it is very interesting that it's not you know you can approach speech as a you know a spoken language and then study the language system and you can study it as a sound and study how the ear works but also it's a it's an incredibly important form of social interaction. It remains the dominant way of having social interactions in a world where you could do everything on your texting. You, people don't. So there is something very interesting about the connections and the meanings of the connections that we make when we talk to each other. And I've got more interested in that kind of social aspect of the voice. You know, we very rarely actually use our voices unless we are with other people. So that's something that I've got more and more interested in. And also, I mean, quite early on I started looking at not just speech with our voices but other things we do with our voices and I did quite a lot of work over the years on an expression of emotion in the voice and as part of that I sort of stumbled on laughter and over the past kind of 10-15 years or so I've done more and more work on laughter just because it's such an interesting area and there's so little research into it and it's an incredibly important behavior and it's completely interleaved with speech most of the time when you laugh it's actually embedded in social interactions spoken interactions with someone else that's where laughter is most commonly found so it's not a a totally separate thing from talking it's something that sort of lives around conversations and it's a very interesting behavior so I've got very interested in that and um, yeah so really I've broadened out probably to say voice I'm interested in voices and it, weirdly, that kind of does take you back to music because although we don't think of it that way, voices are the most extraordinary musical instruments. And even speech, you know, I'm talking to you now and I'm varying the pitch of my voice, the rhythm of my voice continuously because it doesn't re- repeat and it doesn't have obvious structure. We don't think of that as music, but it actually is uh, something in which the, the rhythm and the pitch of what you're doing is almost as important as the words that you're saying. So it's, uh, 
it is something that it I've, I've kind of found a way back to music I think rather indirectly and over a couple of decades. I wonder if I could pick you up on what you were saying about laughter in terms of what you're saying about the complexity of it as a, a form of communication because I guess my, my initial reaction is laughter is what you do when something's funny when you're amused in some way but listening to when you've talked about laughter I've been stunned by by how complex it is as, as a communication and it, and it can not just be about something funny I wonder if, if you could explain to us a bit more it is a very interesting behavior so when I was first working with it it was one of a variety of different emotional vocalizations I was working with like fearful sounds and disgusted sounds and and I called laughter amusement exactly like you just said I thought well it's the thing you do when you find something funny and you find other people referring to it that way and the more I looked into it there was a researcher called Robert Provine from the US who'd done a huge amount of work on laughter when I first read his work I thought well obviously that can't be right because he was saying that laughter actually far from being something to do with amusement although we do laugh at things we find funny it's primarily a social behavior so Provine found that we are 30 times more likely to laugh if there's somebody else with you than if you're on your own and that it's something that happens primarily in conversations. That's where most laughter is found in these spoken interactions. And in those interactions, we're still not laughing mostly at jokes. We laugh at comments and statements like, I might miss my bus or I'll have another cup of coffee. And that's because people are laughing not just for reasons of being amused. They're laughing partly because there's other people there. It's part, you're primed to laugh by people other, being, other people being there you're laughing to show that you're part of the group of people you're talking with. You're showing your affiliation for them. You're showing your affection for them. The more you like the people you with, the more that you will laugh. And you're also laughing to do a lot of communicative work in an interaction. You're laughing to show, you know, that you, you understand something someone said, or that you agree with something that they've said, or that you recognize an illusion that they've made, or that you remember the same thing. And in fact, Provine found that any one point in a conversation, the person who laughs most is the person who's talking. They're laughing to get the people they're talking to to join in so it's got this incredibly complex sort of communicative role but you also use it I mean we'll laugh just contagiously you catch a laugh just because somebody else is laughing you you find yourself laughing again much more likely to happen with someone you know than someone you don't know and that's still it's, it's still social and it's something we learn to do we're not born doing this we'll also use laughter to uh, mask other emotions because it's a socially acceptable behavior in a way that bursting into tears might not be in our culture anyway. So people will use laughter to kind of cover up being angry or upset or embarrassed or in pain. And people will use laughter in a sort of more, you know, almost like a motivated way. So there's a study by Robin Dunbar showing that people, if you can get people laughing, they will share more intimate information with you and they won't realize that's what they're doing. And so, you, you know, that's, that's a kind of marker of the intimacy of laughter. But actually people will, you know, my brother had a colleague when he worked in journalism. He had a colleague who was really good at getting stories, much better than him. And he paid a lot of attention to her because he wanted to know what she was doing. And what she did was she laughed a huge amount in conversations and people would tell her more. And another really important use of laughter, and it's a very, very common use of laughter and a very, very critical one, I think, is laughing to reframe things as play. So laughter is a massive... Jan Panksepp, who did work on laughter in rats, or a, a sound that has all the characteristics of being laughter in rats, said that it, laughter, wherever you find it in the animal kingdom, is associated with like an invitation to play. It's a sort of playful behaviour, a marker of playful intentions. And adult humans use laughter to reframe things as play. 
yeah, I'm okay. This isn't a problem. I'm fine. You know, somebody slipping on the street and going jumping up and going, I'm fine and laughing to show that they're fine. Or in a, you know, in a more difficult situation, people socially, people, we, we use the phrase break the ice. What we mean is we found a reason to laugh and then everything's kind of, we've, we've, smart, we've kind of got, got past that stressiness. And that's a very interesting use of laughter. It's very, very common. Very interesting work from Robert Levinson indicating that couples who deal with stressful situations by using emotional expressions like laughter and smiling do get less stressed and are happier in their relationship because laughter is an efficient way of sort of de-stressing in the moment but also it only works if most both members of the couple laugh it doesn't work if you have to share the laughter for it to work and that seems to suggest that it's not that the laughter is a bit of magic that makes everything okay it's again the laughter is like an index of that relationship where you can navigate a better situation so I don't think that's limited to romantic relationships. I think often that's what we mean by friendship. If you think of laughter in that kind of play situation or being, I was just trying to reframe things as play, it lets you, if you can find a way of doing that, it lets you become less stressed and also just reframe the whole situation as being something that's not unpleasant or upsetting, but actually we're okay. And you do that together. I think that's where it's power lies in the, in the, the way that laughter is something you can negotiate with people rather than just because laughter happened. This makes me think, um, one of the nurses at work, I was talking to her about how they manage difficult situations with patients. And we, I mean, we work in psychiatry, so there's certainly a lot of heightened emotion. You know, people can often be really distressed, which can come out as anger. People can get really wound up. People can often feel quite threatened, for instance, if they're admitted to a ward under a section. Um, and she talked about how one of her favourite things to do is to try, try and use humour, try and get people to laugh. And it had it had never really crossed my mind as something that you could do in that tense a situation. Or yeah. in, but you know, for her, she she said you have to do it carefully. You know, it doesn't work for everybody. You've got to have some kind of relationship with the patient. Yeah. But I guess that links a little bit with what you said with the married couples. I think so. It's um, it can be. I like it's it's not a hard and fast rule that you can just march in, start making jokes, and expect people to laugh and that everything will be okay. That's not going to happen. And your colleague is absolutely right it has to be something that happens in a relationship where even if it's a transient relationship where there's no we're not best friends we're never going to see each other again but they're, they're, we've got to get through this moment together that if you use you know laughter can be or negotiating a way where laughter is permitted and acceptable and they realize that's your intention it can still be incredibly effective um and it's not the same thing at all but i remember being on a train uh, about to leave Euston station and going all the way up to like Windermere it's a very long journey and there was a woman across from me who'd got four seats all to herself just before the train left two men got on and sat on the seats on either side of her and what she said was I'm going to have to move I don't like the smell of coffee they both got cups of coffee but what she did was she couched it in a lot of laughter so that instead of saying, I don't want to sit next to you and your smelly coffee all the way to Windermere, <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, she, she, she did it incredibly efficiently and, and they laughed and she laughed and she moved and they got the table and, and no one was offended by what could have been just a, oh God, I'm going to have to move now, Ugh, horrible smelly men. That wasn't the message they got and it wasn't what she did. So, you know, it was a very different scenario, but exactly the same thing. A, a moment of mild social tension completely eased by very very clever use of laughter which was then mirrored back by the two men brilliant and there's a, there is a literature 
on professions that have to do high stress jobs. So, you know, um, nursing, fire service, police, um, they are often associated within other people that do the same job with really sometimes quite dark humour, which seems to operate at a number of levels. Number one, like giving people a reason to laugh at work and sort of deal with stress and feel more bonded as a result. Also to kind of directly tackle some of the stressful stuff they have to deal with, but also deliberately to keep outsiders out, to be upsetting to outsiders such that they, you know, it is, it's, it's getting its power just, you know, as soon as there's a social bond, someone has to be excluded from it. And this seems to make a real feature of the exclusion. People are being very deliberately kept out. And I, I, that exclusion feeling from laughter, I find really interesting because it, it can be a feature, you know, both in, again, in social interactions, but also something that can become really severe in the patients that we see where either in anxiety or even in psychotic illnesses, you know, that fear that someone's laughing at you or that, or, or the strong belief yeah. that someone is laughing at you and you're not part of it. And because you're not part of it, it's no longer yeah. a nice, happy thing. Absolutely. And it, we don't have good data on the development of this. So I'm going to tell you an anecdote. I can remember because I paid a lot of attention to his laughter because <laughs> irritating scientist parent. But when my son was small, I was very interested in watching how his laughter changed. And I can remember him um, being about five and going to a birthday party where he knew the birthday boy and he didn't know any of the other kids. And, uh, they all, and the, the other kids all went to the same school as the birthday boy. And they were all about the same age. And at tea time, they started, the other boys, not the birthday boy, the boys who didn't know my son started laughing at him. You know, look, it's this silly thing he's doing. Look at that silly thing. And it, they were picking on him because he wasn't part of their group. And my, bro- my son didn't get it. He thought that they were laughing. You know, it was very, being hilarious. He was laughing along. And we had to leave the party. I thought my partner was going to hit someone because it was almost unbearable to see kids laugh at him. And him not to understand, he wasn't understanding he was being laughed at. And it was ridiculous because he didn't care, but we were the ones upset. It was stupid. And then very quickly after that, he kind of flipped completely to the opposite extreme and got very aware of who's laughing at who. About around the age of six, I remember trying to watch the Simpsons film with him. And it starts with a long sequence where Bart has to do his uh, ride on the skateboard in the nude. And it's very funny. And my son got uncontrollably cross and saying, you've got to stop laughing at Bart. You're laughing at him. You know, so you've gone, so you're, you know, we, we go through these big changes, presumably as part of growing up and our relationship with laughter. But the, by the time you're in your teens, late teens, early twenties, we get very sensitive in terms of being able to work out like, you know, are we included in the laughter? Are we being laughed at? Where are we in relation to that? But if you never learn that, or if you're in a situation where you're emotionally unmoored enough from the context of where this would make sense, it can be a terrifying thing because the sense of being laughed at is awful. And if you can't easily work out the likelihood that you're in or out, you're either in the laughter, out of the laughter, or being laughed at. Those seem to be the three stages. And in is the safe place to be. Out, at least it's okay, I'm not included in it, but being laughed at is definitely the worst. And it is striking that galatophobia does seem to be associated with pretty profound psychological disturbances. I, we haven't published it yet, but we did a, we've been putting together a, a questionnaire on people's experiences of laughter. 
And I deliberately had questions about galatophobia in there because I thought it'd be interesting to see how that sort of patterns with other aspects of variation in laughter would like how much people think they laugh, that kind of thing. And it doesn't. It just doesn't relate to it at all. So it seems to be in a in neurotypical populations, just not part of how people think about laughter is fear, which I think is also very interesting. It's it's like a, a it's a such a marker of things being different being, and, and going wrong, perhaps that it's associated with these more extreme states. One one of the problems we're dealing with in the mental health world seems to be this emerging crisis. This this resurgence of mental health problems in young people and there seems to be a growing consensus there's been some work like from the American psychologist Jonathan Haidt that social media may be a contributor and that kids are socializing more online than they are in person and what what you're saying made me think is it possible that because most of the socializing is happening online without sort of direct reading of people's facial expressions that people are starting to misread what laughter means. They're not that well socially calibrated and this leads to more offence perhaps, more anxiety, more, more low mood. Again, we, we, we just, there's just not enough research into the quote normal development of laughter, but we have some evidence showing that people continue learning about what laughter means all the way through their early particularly the social use of laughter, the communicative use of laughter, all the way through their early 20s into their 30s. And that's probably because you, have, you can only learn about like, the social use of laughter, the communicative use of laughter by using it. Being in situations where other people are laughing and using laughter and you are learning, you know, you're learning about their laughter and you're learning how to use your laughter. And if you're not part of that, that's going to be a very hard thing to learn. Now, people... You know, you, you can see on social media, a vast amount of stuff that happens on social media is meant to be funny. People, the intention is there. You know, people want to share laughter. They want to share, they want to share things that will make people laugh. They want to make people laugh. They want that kind of sense of a humorous intention on my part. But A, that can be very easy to misread on social media. There's a whole, kind of, there's a whole Twitter account called Yes, That's the Joke, where people sort of explain uh, things to people. But it can also be taken very much the wrong way, not just that it's not funny, but, you know, people are offended by it. But also, I don't know if without the actual, all those other cues to help you kind of manage that, that lighter communicative use of laughter where actually like wit and humour is fairly minimal. That's not really what's necessary for that to work. It's, all you need is the intention to be playful in your conversation for this to happen. That's going to be very hard to, do, to learn without being in it. And, you know, you can think of many other things that, that would be true of. But I, it's very interesting. You can sort of see on text-based interfaces how much people try and put laughter back in. You know, they put in emojis and GIFs and, you know, all those ASCII emoticons people used to use in the 90s or roll on the floor laughing and waffle copter and all that. All of that is an attempt to say, I am laughing. I'm sharing laughter with you. None of it entails actual laughter. It does not make people laugh. So it would be interesting... You know, it, it, I hope people are finding other spaces in their days where they do get those interactions. But it is that that will be where you learn about it, I suspect, in, in the real world. And do you have any sense from your work on after what what makes something funny? You know, what's the lowest common denominator in something being funny? 
Well, do you know, if I could tell you that, I would be a very, very much more rich and successful psychologist, I think. But there are different theories of humour. There's a theory that it's about superiority. There's a theory, you know, you're kind of laughing because something is you know, lesser than you. and You're feeling good because something's, you know, you are a higher status than something else. Um, there's a theory that there's a group world of theories which are around kind of taboos and inappropriate things and juxtapositions of things particularly if it's not too nothing sort of nothing sort of horrible happens as a often juxtapositions juxtapositions of incongruities can be unpleasant and frightening and there's sort of an idea that as long as it's benign that those things can be funny there's an idea that you know you're kind of like yeah sort of taboo things saying unsayable things well what the, the problem of course with all those things i just said is you can always immediately think of a joke that doesn't make doesn't fit any of those theories so the superiority theory it's hard to see why puns are funny and the incongruity theory it's hard to see why silly things are funny so there was a really interesting paper that came out a few years ago where instead of um, sorry i should say rather a lot of this sort of theories of humor takes jokes and tries to work out why jokes are funny and one problem with this is that you can sort of describe it okay that's why that joke was funny but the theories can never say right this will help me develop a new joke that will be funny you know it's not predictive at all and this paper came out a few years ago by Westbury and colleagues what they did was they took sort of humorousness as like a semantic property and they got people to rate how funny single words were like ankle or raccoon and of course most words aren't that funny but if you take the the sort of the words that part had some humorousness about them and then go in so they're just rated as are they, uh, how funny is this word you do find some things that suggest so for example insult words are judged as funny idiot is funny which has some resonance with that superiority theory and rude words are funny taboo words not all of them but quite you know boobs is funny then then there are other words where there are some speech sounds that seem to be funny, like, so ankle is judged as quite funny because it's, it's words with a k sound in or an oo, like in boon. Boon and ankle are both rated as funny. And that seems to be to do with the, the vowel sound, oo, or the k sound. So we don't really have a theory why that's funny. That just, they seem to be, maybe we need another language to do this study. So maybe it's just something about English. And then there are other words that just seem to be funny to say, like bebop, which, you know, there is a theory, you know, if you kind of think about laughter and play, there's a theory that says humour is just, it's like a playful use of, of interactions. So that, that kind of playfulness, just fun, just silly that seems to have some resonance with why some words just seem to be funny. But I thought that was quite an interesting approach because what they ended up arguing was there isn't one thing. It's a range of different things. And some of them, will, and, and this is just the, the single words. So this is not trying to, that, that, I like that because they're not trying to analyze jokes. They're just taking it as a, as a semantic property. So there is a, a wide range of stuff there. I, I'm still quite fond of that play theory of laughter and humour, which basically says that it's all of it is sort of to do with your playful intention. And, and I think that does work because if people don't perceive what you're doing as being funny, it can just be offensive or upsetting. And again, you see this all the time on social media when people try to make a joke and people don't interpret it that way. 
And there is a very strong social element to this. So there's a study showing that if people think a joke was told by a famous comedian, they're just, just a joke that's written down. So they see a joke written down and they're told that Sarah Millican told that joke. They'll rate it as funnier than if they think Jamie Oliver told that joke because he's famous, but he's not famous for being funny. So there's a real, there's a real sort of like intention and social role of where the joke is coming from or where the humour is coming from. I think it's a huge part of people's engagement with whether or not they find it funny. Um, and I mean, even down to silly things, like if you have, you know, if you have a comedian you greatly dislike, I would wager it's going to be very, very hard for them to make you laugh. It's not enough for there to be jokes and for somebody to have the role and for them to be showing their intention. If you don't like them, it won't work. So there's a, I think even humour is completely embedded still completely in this social kind of emotional context that you're bringing to that humorous situation. One thing that I wondered if you had thoughts about is, uh, I know, again, kind of an anecdotal experience that people have shared with me in, in, in mental illness. So when people have been depressed, they've told me that they just can't find things funny that they are, you know, watching programs or scrolling, again, scrolling through social media, you know, looking at memes, videos, things that when well might get, you know, at least a giggle, a snort, make them laugh. Yeah. And, they, and they just can't. And, and you know, again, they're people who normally would find things funny. And I, and I wonder if, if we know, you know, is it a cause? Is it an effect? Is it a treatment pathway? What What's going on? I mean, I think there is, I can certainly, you know, you can probably think of it in terms of your own life, but I can remember like at times when I've I'm not reaching any kind of clinical threshold, but felt absolutely dreadful. I remember being really down about the Brexit vote and I wasn't in the mood for anything funny and I didn't want anybody to even try. I'd have been cross. And that's, uh, I think, and this is what you do for a living, so I'm not going to try and explain this to you, but often when we think about, say, depression and we think about the kind of the emotional impact, we think about negative emotions. And we don't think so much about an absence of positive emotions, but that could be just a large part of what's going on there. And also the thing about positive emotions is you can't, you have to kind of make the scenario right for them to happen. You can't just decide to be happy. I read a lovely analogy that uh, happiness is like a bird that you want to visit your garden and the best you can do is make your garden really nice and hope the bird turns up, you know. The things sort of have to be right. And you, you, and I, I mean, and you see this with laughter. You can't, I find people get, you know, I, get, I study laughter in the lab. You can't just get people in the lab and make them laugh. They won't do it. Anything that makes people feel anxious or exposed or observed, they, laughter instantly stops. So... The, the social emotional context has to be right for those positive emotions to start to inhabit those spaces. A really interesting thing that came out of the Robert Levinson's lab was if you think back to those couples where one person's laughing and the other person isn't laughing, that's a massive red flag for the relationship. That relationship is not likely to make it much longer because one person is already saying, I'm, I'm out with the laughter, I'm not joining in. I'm not doing this with you. I'm not, I'm not fighting. I'm not even going to pretend that I'm doing it with you. So, you know, I, th I think there's probably a strong element of that with mental illness is an absence of positive emotions, but that absence isn't like a, a pot of emotions that's just been emptied out. Those emotions have to be, so the conditions have to be right for those emotions to appear in the first place, particularly with sort of behavior and emotions around laughter, because laughter is 
it's not it's a social emotion so it's something happening in interactions with other people and it's it's living in those spaces so it's not something you experience very much on your own anyway so if the, and if other things are influencing the interactions you have with other people that might mean that laughter is hard or impossible for that to appear that's going to have knock-on effects for the interaction that you're having and the, any further likelihood that that might might appear does that make sense mm. and it and in terms of bringing it back I guess, like you say, it's about building back the right condition, mm. which maybe links into what we know about why is it that antidepressants take a while to work and and some work from a lab in Oxford where they've sort of shown that, you know, actually there are some very subtle things that do start. You, you can you can notice some changes in the first week, couple of weeks that actually people are picking up more on positive aspects yeah. of life that they pick up on those stimuli more than they did before the antidepressant. And that perhaps kind of an accumulation of those positive emotions is then what leads to the depression eventually remitting. Yeah. I'm sure you're right. And I, I think it's um, so something that I don't, I mean, that we, I, I and some colleagues at UCL have had a couple of goes at looking at some aspects of this, but I really would like to do a bit of a deeper dive around, say, depression and laughter and use of laughter, because anecdotally, people who are feeling very depressed can find a lot of conversational laughter which isn't help with spontaneous laughter really irritating so it's not just that you're not minded to join in with it you find it actually enraging or upsetting that it's happening or you're hearing is the sort of fakeness and that's going to have even more knock-on effects with the interactions that you're having with the people who are probably using laughter around you to try and sort of get laughter going and I think that's you know, anything that would kind of turn that around, even a small amount. As you say, it wouldn't happen immediately. You're not flicking a switch. But anything that might just start to change the tenor of those interactions and possibly shape it in a, in a, more and more in a direction where those things could actually start to live. Hmm. One of the things that flicked into my mind, which is on a completely different point, but when you were talking right at the start about um, your work on voice and tone and and how our voice is kind of an instrument in the way that we use it it just got me wondering about because one of the things that we do in our psychiatric examination is we comment on on how somebody speaks so how what their tone is like what their volume is like because it's it's kind of one of the few external signs that we we can pick up to try and point us yeah. towards what kind of illness someone might be experiencing and it and again why 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 is it why does why does our voice change so much when we're in different states different illnesses i, 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 mean, I think it's because voices are it's going to sound really stupid but voices are a thing that we do so you produce your voice if i didn't say anything you would not know anything about what my voice sounded like and when we start doing that thing i.e., using our voice we part of what's influencing what i sound like is the physical shape and size of my body you know if i was if i was much taller much shorter my voice would reflect that but also um like my health your mood massively affects what you sound like and like if somebody is really adrenalized it will it will physically affect what the vocal folds do so you when someone's really scared you get a very distinctive wobble high pitch to the voice which is largely to do actually with what adrenaline is doing to control of the vocal folds and you also have a very strong effect on the voice of of like you being you when you're talking so when you're you know we speak in a way where we that where we that reflects to some degree how we wish to be heard 
you know, so I'm talking differently now than if I was buying fruit on Chapel Market or if I'd just been arrested by the police or if I was back in Blackburn, you know, all of those that might, and part, a lot of that would be an element of that would be me sort of reflecting back my, uh, how, how I wish my voice to sound in that environment. And there's a strong sort of aspirational element to that as well. There's lots of things about our voice that we can't change, but we can, sorry, about our bodies that we can't change, but we can change our voices, you know, and people do, everybody changes their voice over their lifetime in terms of how they speak. Everybody, if you listen to anybody go back in the past, everyone just sounds posher. So even the queen has changed her voice over her lifetime a lot. And that's because it's just a continuously shifting thing. And it's very affiliative. So you, the more you like the person you're talking to, the more you'll change your voice to be like theirs. So there's, it's a, it, there's all these different levels that are influencing why you sound like what you sound like. And anything that comes in that's affecting your, you know, your sense of what your voice should, you know, that kind of aspirational uh, social aspect of your voice or the physical aspect of your voice or the emotional elements that are affecting your voice will massively influence what, what you end up listening to. And I do know there's a, there's a, a psychologist called Britta Elvervag in Norway who has been trying to use phone conversations as a way of actually picking up different aspects of psychiatric states for this, for this exact reason, um, that you could, could you use that as some kind of index of somebody's change? Something I found really interesting is uh, I, I edit a lot of these podcasts. So I've spent hours and hours listening to people's voices and learning when the people sound confident, when do they sound nervous? When... I, I do think you mm. can hear that the effect of that adrenaline. Yeah. Based on your work, do you have any tips if someone wants to sound more confident, if they want to make their voice sound more confident? What's, what's, what could they do? The main thing I would say is get experience talking. Just do take any opportunity you do you can get to talk and talk in front of an audience. Talk to people you haven't talked to before. It's fine doing it on your own, but it's great also just to talk to people, particularly if you're you know for like a, for some sort of performance. If you've got to give a talk or if you've got to do a podcast, just take opportunities to practice that because. It's not going to stop you getting anxious. You should get anxious without exception. The times when I thought, oh, I don't need to worry about that. I'll be fine. And when I've really done bad talks, <laughs> I've really, really failed utterly. So anxiety is good if you use it productively to help you sort of focus what you need to do to deal with this thing. But the main thing, the main thing for giving, for, for anything with your voice is just to do things to use your voice. If you really want to go hardcore, I would say probably one of the best things that I ever did in terms of for me personally in terms of developing my kind of communication skills and my comfort speaking was trying doing stand-up comedy because it was completely terrifying totally different from what I normally do and actually it taught me a lot about how to you know kind of work with a situation that feels uh you know kind of in the moment you know if comedy's working or not because if people aren't laughing it's not working and so you, it's actually how you navigate that and how you you way through and how you cope when you've had bad gigs and i've had bad gigs and i've had good gigs and you sort of how why would that how, how do you manage that how do you navigate that and just feeling like you you do come off that kind of thing thinking if i can do that i can do anything and i'm not the only person i'm my partner we both started doing this in our 40s and he was like I've, I've stopped worrying about he turned up to give a talk in Norway where a 20 minute talk turned out to be like an hour and a half long and he had, he had time to change his slides and he's like no problem I, 
I've done stand-up comedy. I can cope with this, you know. So that if you really want to go hardcore, that's that's that would be my my main advice. But anything where you get to use your voice is going to help. Do you do you perform regularly? What's what's your stand-up tour routine like at the moment? <laughs> well, whenever I get asked to, basically, I mean, no one's fool. People know I'm a scientist, you know. Um, <laughs> not, you know um, and there is a there is a, a quite a lot of science-based comedy um in the uk now so i'm sort of part of that world but it's 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 been it's been harder to do under lockdown it's starting to come back up now people are starting to do gigs again but it was i did a few lockdown gigs and it was awful doing stuff on zoom because you just can't you you know all the all the laughter that would normally be there hopefully is definitely not there and it's very hard to actually keep going when just talking at a screen and sort of having to imagine people are well, you know they're probably not laughing at home because they're on their own. That will mean that they won't laugh in the same way. So it's a, it's a strange thing. Makes you feel a lot less funny. I, I've on that on that link. I found your your paper. I think it was on the use of canned laughter with bad jokes and kind of the yeah the influence that that had on how people find things funny. It was interesting because we did that paper just before the whole pandemic, and what, so what we found was if you add you ask people just to rate how funny jokes are. If you add laughter onto the end of the jokes, it makes the jokes funnier. And the more spontaneous the laughter, the funnier it makes the jokes. And that was really interesting because it wasn't, the laughter didn't, wasn't like stage laughter. It was just a sound of one person laughing, but it's, it's just enough to kind of push people in that direction. And, and then of course we went into lockdown and all sorts of things that normally had laughter, like lots of TV programs that would normally be filmed in front of a live audience like QI suddenly didn't have that laughter and it sounded empty and weird and people started doing stand-up comedy gigs online and again you're seeing everything that's normal about the performance in terms of what the person's saying but you're not part of an audience and you're not surrounded by the laughter and it makes it all less funny and interestingly for the performers it makes them feel less funny because you know if you if you can hear people laughing when you're on stage you you do become funnier you know, again, it's that kind of virtuous circle. So it was very strange. It was very strange. And, and it, was, it was interesting. We still persisted in trying to find ways of doing it. There was a desire to do it, but it, we never really cracked away of getting that sense of what the laughter that what the laughter would feel like and that you were part of it. I mean, I, I remember watching, I think, an episode of How I Got News for You, and we were so excited because it was one of the first things to come out again, you know, after months of lockdown. And and yeah, being somewhat disappointed, uh, like, you know, excited because it was a thing and it was something, but the yeah. the comedy itself wasn't quite as, as good as what we previously enjoyed. But did they did they start putting on laughter tracks? Did did, did that get taken up or tried or? Um, I don't know. I know that that QI had like, that, um, like crew members sitting in the audience trying to laugh. There was some laughter because it sounded almost worse because there was just a handful <laughs> of people laughing in a very echoey way. It was interesting because over in sport, they absolutely did. They just started drawing. If you watch the snooker, if, the, if, the shot, if a shot was good, they put in a round of applause. And um, my, my brother-in-law works in TV sound and he spent most of the pandemic adding la- not laughter, adding crowd noise and cheering onto football matches and sort of building those around the, the goals and, and just like editing sound fully because that was a huge part for people watching at home. It's a massive part of feeling like you're watching something is the reaction of the people in the stadium. So that, I, that was some, 
that's that seemed to be relatively successful maybe people are more tolerant of that than they are of laughter if you know that laughter is not real it kind of maybe still doesn't work i don't know and i think you've spoken about how good people can be at picking up real laughter versus put on laughter and is there a difference in what they're used for in communication as well or well most laughter you encounter is is to some level you know deliberate volitional laughter people are doing it you know in the same way that i am volitionally talking to you now i'm using my voice under voluntary control you i have some control over that laughter so for example if you watch people having a conversation you'll find that they laugh together at the ends of sentences it's really tightly coordinated and in fact if you were laughing helplessly you couldn't do that if you think back to the last time you were laughing helplessly you can't start and stop it you can't perfectly time it so you have like spontaneous laughter is rare and doesn't tend to happen in random situations like i most i can't think of a time when i laughed really helplessly where i wasn't with someone who's very close to me but conversational laughter is very common you still have degrees so even within conversational laughter there are studies showing that people can tell from listening to conversational laughter how close two friends are because you do laugh differently even though it's to some level conversational laughter you, you laugh more warmly more intensely with people that you're closer to than something that, something that might be a bit more reserved and dry with someone who's someone you're less close to or someone that you're a, more of a stranger so i think conversational laughter is like a whole world of laughter and it can blur i suspect actually it blur, starts to blur into that spontaneous laughter if you think about a time you've been with friends where there's a lot of laughter and it will not all just, it's going to be less of a kind of fixed distinction between spontaneous laughter and conversational laughter there, I think. And I want it chemically, what happens, like does laughter, because I think you speak about laughter being used in emotional regulation and it's something that we do to, yeah, deal how we feel. Does it, mm. do we know what it, what does it do in the brain? You get an uptake of, the uptake of circulating endorphins. So you get an, a nice feeling okay. you get a, a nice warm yeah. buzz like after ex- any exercise with laughter and that probably is just like an exercise response you get a reduction in adrenaline very quickly in fact you can do it yourself if you put on a one of those in a, a, one of those little pulse things that sits on your finger when you start laughing you'll notice your pulse starts to shoot right up and then as soon as you stop laughing it will drop down and it will drop down to lower than it was before because that's the that's the adrenaline reduction and you also get a reduction in cortisol. That's slower, but it is associated. You're getting less anxious, more relaxed, and you are getting less stressed when you laugh. So you can pick up these changes. There's also, I'm trying to be really careful here because there's a lot of nonsense talked about what happens in your brain when you laugh. But there is also quite good evidence that when you laugh, there is an increase in production of human growth hormone, which in adulthood has a very important role in the immune system. So there is something going on there, but the, you know, there is not enough research. I don't, I don't know what the immediate consequences of that would be, and it may have no immediate cognitive effect at all. It may be purely to do with sort of the immune response, but I don't know. Is there, is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you'd want to share or anything that you're working on at the moment that you'd like people to tune into? If people are interested, I have a podcast called The Neuromantics, Neuromantics, where I and a poet try and communicate. Um, and just generally, I think there should be a lot more conversations like this, because I think there probably is something really important about how we could use laughter to help 
like shed light on certain aspects of mental health and particularly in psychiatry because it it's it's sort of a low-hanging fruit in terms of the frequency with which you encounter it in neurotypical healthy populations and the complexity with which it's used that i think can lead you it takes you straight from people's emotional worlds into their social worlds in a way that i think probably is really useful to actually start exploring so more of these kinds of conversations you are listening to the thinking thank you so much for coming to speak to us really love so much for listening to this episode thank you so much if you enjoyed it please share it with a friend or give us a rating it really does help people to find us if you find the podcast valuable why not buy us a coffee to help keep us going there's a link in the show notes as ever we love to hear from you and love to hear what you think so drop us an email or get in touch on social media thank you so much